Hello, and welcome to Co-OpCast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. On this week's design discussion, game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly will discuss a board game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everybody. How is it going? Again, they still can't hear you. Oh, jeez. Oh, you're making a joke, aren't you? I was making a joke. <laughs> <laughs> So, welcome back to another episode of Co-op Cast. Today we're going to be deep diving into Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle, a deck builder. And then we're going to have a design discussion on the growing complexity in games. So, as games start out simple and get more complex as they go along. Yeah, we're going to talk about different ways of doing that, both uh, campaign-based systems and also kind of more tutorial or additive systems. So, it should be pretty fun. But before we get into all of that, let's talk about some comments we got on the Slack channel from last week's Pathfinder episode. So Jan agrees with us in the fact that he thinks that the game is repetitive and he'd like to see it revamped with more modern game design techniques. And a cool thing related to that is that Nathan, who was actually involved in the development of the digital implementation of Pathfinder, which... I think Peter and I both agree is probably the better way to play the game currently. Nathan uh, posted his own top five list of Pathfinder on our Slack channel. So, as always, please feel free to email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com and we can add you on there if you want to see his list. But a very cool piece of news he dropped is that apparently there's going to be a new core set of Pathfinder coming out. And this will be more akin to Arkham or one of those kind of games where you buy the core set and then buy expansions that add on instead of the current Pathfinder model where you need to buy a new core set for each of the different settings. So the Egyptian core set is a completely standalone product when compared to the Skulls and Shackles pirate core set. So how do you feel about that, Peter, that change in uh, the product? Well, I think it'll be obviously better for everybody. I mean, you only have to buy one core, and it's similar to like games like Arkham Horror, Living Card Game, or Lord of the Rings, where you're buying a base set, and then you're buying whichever expansions you like. And I think that's a better way to do it. That way, everybody's kind of in on the ground floor with the same base set, and then you kind of decide where to go from there. You're not recommitting in a core set every time you want to expand the game or try out a different setting. So I think it's positive all around. Yeah, I feel good about it, too. I know in the, the couple of core sets that I bought, there was a lot of overlap, especially in the basic cards. Like, yes, they might call it a cutlass instead of a longsword, but in the end, a 1d8 damage melee weapon is the same no matter what the theme of it is. So the fact that I'm going to be getting more cards that I want and more unique cards at probably a lower price point instead of having to kind of accept this expenditure of money for these repeated cards that I don't really need is a nice thing. Absolutely. And the other thing, just to summarize a little bit of what he said, is that the core sets do get better as they go along. They seem to have learned from their mistakes in the earlier sets, and it's gotten better. So with the increased knowledge that they have with years of designing in this one system, and I'm sure it happens because it happens to us too, we get better designing within our own gameplay space. And with all the feedback they've gotten over the years, I'd be excited to come back in and try it anew with all that knowledge behind them and with better gameplay mechanics that they've added and and tweaks that they've done to the games. So I would be looking forward to something like that. 
Yeah, I agree with you 100%. After he had talked about the improving core sets, I was sort of interested in the Egyptian core set, which is the latest one to come out. But I'm certainly not going to buy it now that I know there's something even better, a sort of revamped core set coming out later. So excited to see when that gets officially announced with a release date and all of that. I, I might consider picking it up. And then one more thing from the Slack channel. Howard said he wished there was a way to try out new characters without having to commit to a full campaign. And actually, Nathan brought this up in his points, too. You're playing 33 to 35 games. That's without losing in the core set. And unlike something like Gloomhaven, where you're getting a new character every once in a while, with this game, you're really with the same characters throughout the campaign. And Howard wished there was a way to, like, see what those characters would look like in an endgame state without having to play through an entire campaign with the same characters. Yeah, and I think, actually, Gloomhaven's a good example because... Besides that you do change characters through the core campaign, Isaac's also created these mini campaigns through the Kickstarters that you can play that are, you know, I don't know, six or eight or ten missions with a single character and then you're done. So I do think it's a nice idea for any game that has a really, really long involved campaign to give you a way to do one-shot games or, you know, shorter kind of miniature versions. And again, not to keep coming back to it, but I think the way Arkham Horror LCG did it with a three-mission campaign in the core set that would really give you a taste of the gameplay, I think that's a great example of how game companies might try it out. Absolutely, and that'll tie into our uh, growing complexity as well later on. That's right. All right, but let's get into Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. I'm responsible for the theme here, but the theme is Harry Potter. (laughs) Can you explain Harry Potter in a, a short paragraph, Peter? Sure. Harry Potter is a child wizard who is going to school called Hogwarts, where he makes friends and has adventures throughout the series. If you have not read the books or seen the movies, I highly recommend them. But I am a little bit of a fanboy, although I think not as much as you and Vanessa. Well, my wife is a huge Harry Potter fan. She was involved in the fandom for a while. She was on a... uh a show. She actually got to go to the premiere of Order of the Phoenix as a journalist and interview uh, Rupert Grint and some of the other stars. So she's a super fan and she's done a ton of amazing uh, fan art. And actually, she even wrote her own version of the final book before the final book came out. So I'm nowhere near the super fan that she is. I enjoy them. My enjoyment of the movies went down quite a bit and I really didn't like the last three, I would say, that much. But the books I pretty consistently really enjoyed, although I still think number three uh, was my my high point, probably movie and book-wise. It was my favorite. Cool, yeah, and I'm actually going through the books with Nicholas right now, so I just got done reading part of book seven before I came down here to uh, record tonight. Hey, that's exciting. Yeah, Harrison, uh, we sort of did a little bit of a try of book one, and he wasn't into it yet. But I've read a lot more full novel fantasy books since then, so I think he'd probably do much better on a second go. But all that being said, yeah, I mean, it's a great theme. I'm glad they uh, they did a deck builder in this universe. And let me get a little bit into the gameplay and how that feels. So in typical deck builder fashion, you start with a core set of cards that are slightly themed to the character you choose. You've got the core three plus Neville makes an appearance. And at least at first, the players don't have special powers beyond the couple, or I think it's three unique cards in each of their decks, but those do come in as you go through later boxes. But in the basic gameplay, uh, there's an offer of six cards you can buy. You play uh, cards from your hand. You have a hand of five cards. But before you get to that, first you have to reveal dark arts events, which are these basically 
negative messy up cards. And you draw between one and three, depending on the location you're currently at. And that's one of the ramp up mechanics, basically. As the locations get taken over, you're drawing more Dark Arts cards. The Dark Arts cards will hurt you, make you discard cards, or add these control tokens to the locations, which is uh, pushing forward the loss condition. If all of the locations get taken over, you lose the game. Then, if there are any villains with effects that apply, because you'll have one to three villains face up, these are the, the bad guys of the Harry Potter universe, they will also do their effects after the Dark Arts. The villains, again, will usually hurt you, make you discard cards, or add control tokens. And then uh, you get to play any cards from your hand that you want to. They will generally give you either influence, which is basically money to buy better cards, or attack tokens, which you use to defeat the villains. And uh, you can play the cards and assign things and use the powers in whatever order you want. And then you discard your entire hand. You can't save cards from hand, uh, round to round. You can buy as many cards as you want with your influence from the offer of six. You replace any cards you bought. And you go through it again with the next player. So very basic deck building style with the ascension style of buying where you just have a big deck you shuffle. And just one thing to note is that the game comes with boxes for seven games, each of them representing uh, one of the books in the Harry Potter series. So as you play, you get to open these boxes up and add more cards, and each of them has a little rule sheet for that book that might sometimes add some additional rules. So what I just described is the basic game, but we might mention in the review some things that get added to the gameplay. And I will say there might be some minor spoilers in this review, both for the book series and for the gameplay itself. We will try to warn you ahead of time, if we are planning on talking about some of those, to jump ahead 30 seconds to a minute. But I think it's going to be hard to talk about a lot of this game without giving away some of those. And they're not spoilers like with an escape room game, where it's going to ruin your experience in the game as far as playing goes, but it'll be spoilers as to some contents of what some of those packages will be, just so we can talk about them in a more open manner. Absolutely. All right, so we're going to get into our top five things to know about Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle. Peter, you can start. So we're going to go from our number five, which is something interesting about the game, but maybe not the most important thing. And then we'll go down to our number one, which is uh, good or bad, the thing we think is most unique or most important to know about the game. So, Peter, what's your number five? All right, so my number five is that it does a very good job of doing fan service. What I mean by that is the pictures are right from the movie. It has all the main characters that you would want in there. It has all the main villains that you would want in there. Now, there is a little bit of disjointedness. As Mike said, the game builds on itself, and I know we're going to talk about this a lot today, where you're adding more villains and cards as the game goes on, and none of those ones from earlier years come out. So there is a little bit of a disconnect in there, in the fact that the deck builds and builds, and later on you're facing things that you would not see later on. Characters that are not no longer around, you're doing book five, and characters from book one are still there. With that said, though, all the characters that you'd want to see there are there, all the spells, you know, the spells are named after the spells in Harry Potter. So I think they do a very good job of making fans want to at least look at the game. If they pick up a couple cards, even if they don't know what the game is about, they will immediately be attracted to it because of that. 
Yeah, I agree entirely. The use of theme was an honorable mention for me. I think the components are generally very attractive. I love the one side of the board as you open the game box is a recreation of like the Marauders map and some other Hogwartsy items. So you get a really nice kind of thrill of fan service even as you first open the box. And yeah, all the people you want to see and all the things you want to see are definitely represented. Now, I'll talk about that a bit more on my list, but yeah, definitely agree. They they did a pretty good job with the theme in some ways. All right, cool. So, Mike, what's your number five? It's right, so my number five is my only one that's like a straight up spoiler for some mechanics. So if you want to skip forward a minute or two, if it really bothers you, you can. But again, I will say that these boxes you're opening, which I'll talk about more later... It is not a legacy style where, like, you're seeing majorly secret things. I mean, yes, you will find out some mechanics that get added and see some cards that get added, but nothing that got added ever surprised me or, like, made me think, wow, that's so amazing. So it is not what you might expect from a pandemic legacy or something like that, or even opening a new character in Gloomhaven. It is not that level of excitement. All right, so my number five is focused on a gameplay mechanic that it is added in book four and book seven. So in book four, you get these house dice added, which uh, some characters will allow you to roll and some enemies will roll too. And basically there's one for each of the four houses in Harry Potter, again, if you know the lore. And each of them, if you roll a certain result, will give all the players that bonus. So everybody will get some healing or everybody will get an attack or everybody will get a influence token. And this is generally a con for me. I think it's much ado about nothing and an added rule that is totally unnecessary Because each of the dice has 50% chance of giving you one result, so most of the time you will get a single result. So it makes it seem like the characters are more interesting than they are, but it's actually kind of a dull power that doesn't really add much, because it's pretty much the same as just saying every player get plus one attack, or every player get plus one influence most of the time. Now it gets worse when you go to book seven, again, spoiler, you do have to face the Horcruxes, which if you know the story I won't explain, but those are a major thing in the story. And the Horcrux is the only way to defeat them is to roll these dice, which is a major design misstep in my mind. It really ruins Scenario 7 for me because uh, two things. Number one, it is frustrating to roll dice and not get the result you need to defeat the Horcrux because the game can already go a little bit long, especially in Scenario 7. And because it's a deck builder and you're shuffling through your deck and only getting these cards every once in a while, to get a card that might be only one of 20 cards in your deck that allows you to roll a die and not get the result you want, incredibly frustrating. Really adds a lot of time for no reason to the game. But on top of that, there are a fairly small number of cards that actually allow you to roll dice. So you can have a situation where you don't get any cards that let you actually achieve the victory condition and you need to take care of these horcruxes before you can win so i think the dice in general was trying to add an interesting mechanic but really isn't anything special and actually leads to one of the uh weaker design choices in specifically book seven and it's what makes for me book seven the worst one to play i would rather play one of the earlier ones instead of book seven So again, sorry, all the rest of my points are not as spoilery, and this didn't ruin it for me because, again, I just don't play Book 7, and it's not as big of a deal, but uh, that was my number five. 
I only have one experience with Book 7, and I didn't run into that at all. I guess I got a lot of cards with dice that came out, so I think it's going to be swingy in that way, where if you get a lot of cards with dice early on, we just weren't buying cards that didn't have dice, if you could help it. Now, again, there's only six cards face up. If none of them have dice on them, you do have to buy them, or you can take a full turn to just wipe them. That is a rule that isn't in the rulebook, but it's something they added in the expansion, and they definitely put it into the original rules. So if you want to play with that, I definitely would recommend it. Well, I think the official variant, as I heard it, was once per game you can wipe the marketplace, which is not enough. (laughs) Well, we'll get to the marketplace later, but I think it's a sloppy fix for a bad design decision. Yeah, and for me, the dice, I mean, I think they were kind of cool. You said it added complexity, but it really doesn't. I mean, if you roll a heart, everybody heals one. If you roll a coin, everybody gets a coin. If you roll a lightning bolt, everybody gets a lightning bolt. I mean, it wasn't much complexity, and I like the way they used them on the villain cards probably better than the way you used it. But I did think it was kind of cool whenever you got one of those cards that you got to roll a dice. It didn't take that much time away from the game. So for me, I was definitely not as down on the dice as you. I actually kind of liked them, in fact. Um, Now, I will say, in Mission 7, if I didn't get cards with dice, I would have been very annoyed. But we beat all seven Horcruxes very quickly, well before we were even close to getting to the end of that enemy deck. So, Cool. All right, what's your number four, Peter? All right, so my number four is this game is way, 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 and a little bit more way too easy. I don't know that I've ever gotten past the first location, and usually it's like two or three locations. If you go through all three locations, then you lose the game. Most games, including level seven, book seven, which is supposed to be the hardest, I won't even have any of those little metal tokens on it. And you need like seven tokens on it, usually to to pass a level. Um, Because there are cards that literally remove them that can show up in your deck. And they're not expensive cards. They may cost three or four. And they literally remove the only way the game progresses in a negative way for you is to add these metal things to the board. And you have a card that wipes it out completely. And so I have never had a situation, even in book seven, where I felt even remotely close to losing the game. Um, So for me, that's a big misstep. There are probably ways to fix this. I mean, you could just remove all of those cards from the deck, which would be fine. There's still plenty of interesting stuff you could do then. But I don't know that I want to do that. And for other reasons we're going to talk about later. So that's my number four. The game is way too easy for me. Now, I will say two important comments about that. I've played the game almost exclusively two-player, and I think you probably have two, Peter, right? Two or three-player? Correct. And like all co-op deck builders, I've never played a single one that doesn't have this problem because it's just the nature of the beast. Aeon's End has this problem, and Legendary Encounters has this problem. The more players you have, the more turns you're taking with bad stuff happening without majorly upgrading your decks because you have to go through four player turns of each of you buying maybe one good card with uh, bad things happening instead of just two player turns. So your decks become better more quickly. So I do think probably with four players, what Peter's talking about wouldn't be as bad. And there are some, not inspired, but there are some suggested difficulty variants in the book where you start with more control tokens on locations. But still, definitely two-player, if that's the way you plan to play it. I agree 100% with Peter that it's kind of sillily easy. And I'm going to talk more about some of the stuff he said later. But even if you start with more control tokens, one card will remove them. (laughs) Yes, yes. 
So my number four is my only unmitigated pro. And it's a very small thing, but it has a big effect on the game for the people I play with. Unlike most deck builders, so most deck builders, you play your cards down and you just see how much money you have to spend or how much attack you do. And it's it's not like tracked in any way. You just see, hey, I have six money. You buy something for six, six money. This game actually includes attack tokens and influence tokens to track your money. And that seems like a really minor thing. Why am I even mentioning it as number four on my list? But it has two major effects that I think are both really good for the game. First, number one is it gives you something that I don't see much in deck builders where I can give other players bonuses of money and attack when it's my turn. Most deck builders don't do that because there's no way to track it. If I said I give you plus two money, how the heck are you going to remember that later? Now, there are other clever ways of doing that. For example, Legendary Encounters gives you the cards that you can play on somebody else's turn to give them money and you get to redraw so it doesn't cost you anything. But I really like how this does it in a simpler way with the tokens. The other really cool thing about the tokens, I've been playing this game with my five-year-old. We're through book three, and he's totally digging it and totally doing a great job, partially because as he plays a card, he can put the token down, and it gives him a really easy way to count what he's done without having to look through five different cards. He's just got some tokens there for attack, some tokens there for influence. So I think, especially considering that this game, I would say, is targeted toward younger audiences and fans of Harry Potter. Those are kind of the two big audiences they're selling it to. I really like this inclusion to make the game easier for younger players to play because there's a way to immediately track what they're getting from their cards. So for the kind of interesting cooperative elements it adds and for the easy tracking for younger or less experienced players, I really like the attack and influence tokens. Yeah, I agree, and I'm going to get to that point a little bit later on. So my number three is the campaign progresses complexity. And that's what we're going to talk about at the end in our design discussion today. Every time you play a new book in the campaign, it is adding something. And I think that is a good thing. I think especially for the audience, as you were just talking about, of potentially non-gamers, just fans of the book, or for younger children, I think it's really good to start off with something very basic and increase the complexity after each game. I like that portion of it. Now, it does take some missteps, and I'm sure we'll both get to this later on as far as not removing things from the game, but I do think that adding complexity is not a misstep of the game. And I do like how in each of those little boxes, there's a new rule sheet that tells you what the new rules of it are as well. So it kind of points out, oh, this is the new rule. And so you don't have to necessarily go look that up. And there's a setup for each of the books as well. And I think it does a really good job there. So you know exactly how you're supposed to set up for each book, even if you don't remember like, all right, how many villains am I supposed to put out? Things like that. You can just check that little leaflet for each chapter And the rules are pretty straightforward otherwise, so I haven't had to do any rulebook diving beside that. Most of the rules I want to know are on that little leaflet. So I think it does a good job there. Yeah, so my number three is basically the exact same as yours, except I did take a slightly different tack. And for me, it wasn't a full-on positive. And this is for reasons you've already mentioned. So mine was the book packs and how you open new books. The biggest positive for me here, and not as much for me personally, I've been, I was okay when I opened each of them, but again, I didn't find them to have much that was exciting. But playing with both my wife, a huge Harry Potter fan, and my son, a child, and again, I think those are kind of the two best audiences for this game. 
both of them were incredibly excited with each box that was opened because you get to see all these new characters that are favorites and they match the things that happened in that book. So for the Harry Potter fans, it's really cool to get that experience of kind of seeing the story retold through the cards that are added. And for my son, he just was excited to see the new things he could buy, to see new toys being added. And we haven't gotten to the dice yet, but I think he'll probably have a similar reaction to you, Peter. Like, it'll be fun for him to see, oh, man, we have dice now and we get to roll these. So I think it's a really nice excitement factor to the opening, as all these legacy games have kind of shown. It's just fun to open little puzzle boxes and see what new thing you get. On the negative side, I think... And we'll talk about this more with our design discussion, but I think games that add complexity need to eventually end up with the best game experience. And as I already mentioned, I think book seven is actually the worst game experience. And I really think book five and six are also pushing the game not into too complex of a level, but into too long of a level. And that goes back to something you already mentioned also, that the villain deck is never called and no cards are taken out of it, which is both completely unthematic, because I'm fighting people who, as you said, are defeated, but also increases the length of the game greatly. So I think this game is a bit of a misstep, because in trying to perfectly match the books, they did not end with the best game possible. And most of these games, when I know the game well, I'm going to play with the highest level. In this game, I prefer to play in uh, book four or maybe five for the best experience, which is a little bit of a weird design decision. So I can't say this is entirely a pro. I like the excitement of opening the book packs, but I think the choice to keep the villains in and be unthematic that way, and also the way that the game gets bloated in later plays, is a negative of the book packs and kind of shows maybe not as much testing as I would have liked in how the game builds over time. Yeah, when we were opening those packs, that was exciting for everybody at the table. You know, the first thing we do is open the pack and they want to look through the new cards that they can buy, see what characters were added. Whether, you know, even before my son was a huge fan of the series, I actually think the game got him into wanting to read the books more. Oh, absolutely. Harrison is all about this story now. He's like, can I be Harry Potter? I want to see what Harry Potter does. So he's, I, I have a strong feeling that after playing this, he's going to want to go read those books. Yeah, and he actually didn't even want to progress past what book he was in or what movie he had seen. So he made us watch the movie before he would even play the next game. And then he opened up the packs and was like, oh, that's really cool. I know when this, remember when this happened? <laughs> that's great. Yeah, I think totally for for kids, for fans of the series, it's going to do something for them that it didn't necessarily do for us you know, reviewing this as gamers, right? game designers at that, who tend to look at everything with more of a critical eye. So getting on to my number two is this is a very basic deck builder. Going back to episode zero, I think I put this in one of my top five games for newcomers to the hobby, newcomers to gaming. And I still think that statement is true because I think at the very, very beginning of the game, the first three, four chapters are very fun to play, even though the difficulty is a little bit too easy. I mean, I do think actually, because at the very beginning, you don't have those cards that remove the threat to each of the locations. So those missions are actually sometimes even harder and more challenging and more stressful. But I think it's a good deck builder. If somebody's never played a deck builder before, those tokens, like you were talking about, do a great job of making it very easy to learn, very easy to understand. I love it when my kids bring friends over. This is one of the first games we go to because all of them know Harry Potter 
and it's very easy to learn the basics of the game. So if somebody's new to deck building, this is probably the best game to introduce them to the deck building mechanisms, in my opinion. Yeah, I mean, I'm totally with you. We're, I, I have a feeling we might be kind of in sync for our top three, because we had pretty much the same third, and I have about the same second, except mine is a complete con uh, with the same thing. Because I agree 100% that it is probably the best deck builder to introduce a new young player to deck builders. And apart from that, I think it is one of the worst deck builders I've ever played for actual deck building. (laughs) So let me get into a few reasons for that, because it is a pretty strong statement. So first of all, one of the biggest things is that the game has no mechanic whatsoever for culling your deck, which is my favorite thing in deck builders. So to explain for those who aren't big uh, deck builder players, pretty much every deck builder has a way to get rid of cards in your deck because in pretty much every deck builder, including this one, you start with not strong cards. And so if you can get rid of your weak cards, you can both improve the overall strength of your deck and also hone in on certain strategies. This game has no mechanic whatsoever to do that. So you'll be stuck with those same boring give me one influence cards for the entire game every time. Now, this is compounded by the way that the marketplace is a stagnant six cards, unless you're playing with this variant rule where you can discard all of them a couple times per game. So you are often stuck in a situation where, because of the amount of influence you got on your turn, or because of the cards that are available, you have to buy some stuff that is not good for you or doesn't fit any particular strategy. So your deck gets bloated, and it'll often be, I'll have several turns of just drawing crud or drawing a single card that I find interesting or that shows a character that I care about. So you get these really big, slow-playing, uninteresting decks. There are so few combos in the game. There are character abilities that are added in the later books, and I think those are kind of trying to fix that. Hermione likes spells, Ron likes allies. But (laughs) the benefits they get are very small. They only have a few cards that combo off of it, and the cards within the uh, marketplace themselves have basically no combos whatsoever because there are so few effects. It's like get attack, get influence, draw a card, heal, get rid of one of those control tokens. That's it. That's the entire, like, sum total of effects you can have. One card might be like draw a card and discard a card, but there is nothing complicated. And again, it's great to teach somebody, but in terms of actually, like, building a deck that sings and does cool stuff, there's none of that. In terms of culling your deck to make it more interesting to play, there is none of that. This is, for gamers or even people who have played other deck builders, the most boring and least inspired deck builder I have ever played. And, you know, sorry to the people who designed it. I think you did a great job for making an accessible game, but it is not a good deck builder in any way in terms of actual deck building. Yeah, and I wonder why, because they do increase the complexity as the campaign goes along. I wonder why they didn't add more effects. They really did keep it to those five things. But you're right, it's really just getting money and attack and healing are the major ones, and of course removing those threat tokens. But yeah, it's really weird. They gave themselves a system where they were increasing complexity as you went along, and the only thing they really did is have different enemy effects and bad things. All the cards were basically, well, this is an item that does two damage, and this is a spell that does two damage. Like, I don't know why they didn't ramp up that complexity as well as they went along. Yeah, and the only thing I'll say, like, there are some cards that let you, if you get a certain card type, it goes straight to the top of your deck. So I guess that's one more effect. <laughs> so there's six instead of five. But again, it's so uninspired. And even and as Peter mentioned, even the villains have more interesting effects. Like, why didn't you take some of those villain effects and 
boil them into the the player card effects. And it makes me angry again at my number five, the house dice, because that seems to be adding a new effect. Suddenly you can roll these four different dice, but it's the exact same stuff. You're not really adding anything new. You're just pretending to add something new by having people roll dice. So it's, <laughs> it's, it's such a basic deck builder. It's, it's, it's unfortunate because I, I want to like the game more because I like the theme and I can't. Yeah, and my number one, I'm sure it's going to be yours as well, is this game gets overbloated. Is that your number one as well? No, not, not well, not quite the same, but I'm sure we're going to say some of the same complaints. So go ahead, you go first. All right, so as Mike had mentioned earlier, and I kind of alluded to it, there's never anything taken out of this game. Literally, the spells you have in book one are still there by the time you get to book seven. And that one isn't as bad as the villain's. The villains just keep getting added. The villains that Harry Potter fights in book one that are clearly not in any other book, (laughs) you're fighting them in the seventh book of the series. And I don't understand why they didn't think to take those out because it really extends game time. I think the reason I don't mind the first four games, and I actually really enjoyed myself through the first four or five games, as Mike was saying, is... The game plays pretty quickly, even with small kids. Like, I played it with both of my children, and trust me when I say, if there's not something constantly going on, they get bored and want to move on to something else, they never got bored with this game in the first four or five books. I mostly played it three players. After that, my daughter started getting bored as the turns started getting longer, because there's so many things you're doing now during the enemy phase as well, because there's like three different villains that are attacking you, which again is cool because it adds to the difficulty, but I wish they just had one villain that did more to you, and you were still always fighting one or two villains at a time, rather than, okay, this card does this, and this one does this, and this one does this. I mean, it's pretty easy to run, I think, even for non-gamers, which is probably why they chose that path. But it really drags out the length of the game. And by the end, you're talking about two-hour games. I don't think anybody wants to play this game for two hours. (laughs) (laughs) So that's my number one. The game just gets overbloated by the end of it. So to to add on one thing to what you said, the, the bloating of the marketplace bothers me a lot too. Because you do see these cards that you love, like these major characters, but there's only a single copy of each of them. There's only one Dumbledore. There's only one... Mr. Weasley. There's only one of your most beloved characters, but each of these boxes you open adds like 10 player cards, and a lot of them will be these random spells that don't even have good artwork on them, or these items that aren't that exciting. So when you're playing in game 5, 6, or 7, you'll never see major characters that you really care about. So I think even culling cards out of the player deck, the the marketplace, would have been a really good thing to do too, because it's the same problem with the villain deck. I've played this game quite a lot, and I have only gotten Dumbledore, bought Dumbledore, one of the most interesting and important characters and the most powerful card in the game. I've bought him once. I've only seen him when I'm not playing in you know game one or two where he's one of the only cards. I've only seen him a few times because he's buried in this giant marketplace deck. So I think, yeah, the bloat is a major problem in a lot of ways. But my number one is a little different, and we've already talked about it a bit, but I think this is the the kiss of death for this game that makes it such a negative experience sometimes. And this is the swinginess of the game, which you alluded to, Peter, that it can be incredibly easy or... or I've never really seen it be punishingly hard, but it can be way harder sometimes. And there's one really major reason for this, and that is that the difficulty does not ramp up in a consistent, controlled way. And this is so important for co-ops. Like, this is co-op design 101. 
You need to have bad things happen, and they need to get worse no matter what you do as the game progresses so that the game always reaches an end state. I have a major, major problem with co-ops that do not... that, that, that can potentially progress forever. A game I recently played is the Buffy the Vampire Slayer, uh, the more recent co-op game, not the uh, one that's out of print and has been out of print for a long time. And that game, it is very easy to control the enemies without really progressing yourself. You could literally play the game forever if you so chose. There is no mechanic that makes it get harder automatically as the game goes on. And you have the same thing here. The only thing that ramps the game up and makes things progress more quickly is when a location is completely taken over, sometimes the number of Dark Arts cards you're drawing will increase. You'll go from one card a turn to two card a turn, sometimes to three cards a turn. If that happens, if you get to at least two Dark Arts cards a turn, the game does become somewhat of a challenge. You can potentially actually lose and have some bad things happen, and it can get harder and harder and harder, as a co-op should. But if you can stay on that first location, which is often not very hard, especially because, as Peter mentioned, they put in cards that completely wipe out an enemy control token, the main timer for the game. It just completely stops the timer for the game. It's ridiculous. You can stay on the first location and have no challenge whatsoever. And then the fact that you have this huge villain deck to go through is such a slog. Yeah, so really the inclusion of these cards that completely remove a control token... Really bad decision, lets the game reach a kind of null state where nothing happens. And you don't even have to cut those cards out completely, just make them cost more. They are really cheap. Like, they are silly cheap. There's a basic card, there's several copies of it, that costs three, that removes an entire control token. It's absurd balancing. And the thing is, Peter had mentioned you can take them out, but you can't, because Harry Potter, the most important character in the game, theoretically... His entire character power is entirely based on those cards. If you take those cards out, Harry Potter has no character power for all intents and purposes. Uh, It's just, it's really frustrating. And here's the other thing. We didn't talk about this at all, but each character has a health track, and a lot of villains will do damage to them, and then a lot of cards will let you heal that damage back. And if a character's life runs out entirely, then you add a control token, they discard some cards. So they have a mechanic already in there that allows you to slow down or speed up the progression of the enemies by healing yourself or not healing yourself as you take damage. Works fine. If they had taken out the cards that take away the tokens entirely, which, by the way, is like healing 10 life in one go because you completely reversed the addition of a token. If they had taken out those cards and just left the give and take of health, like the the locations are getting taken over slowly over time no matter what you do, but they can be taken over more quickly if you don't manage your health, it would have worked totally as intended. I have no idea whose idea it was to add these cards at such a cheap cost. It makes no sense. So my big number one major knock against the game sometimes and often it'll be one of the easiest things ever because cards allow you to stop the game from progressing and stop the enemies from actually doing anything bad and it's dumb yeah i feel like that's one of those late additions to the game where they're like what should the power for harry potter be oh i know we'll have them do something cool when these control tokens are removed well we don't have nearly enough cards in the game to do that let's just add some more cards in that won't be a problem all right let's send it out It, it should be fine no problem at all And it really does. It completely halts the negative progress that happens, which just leads to ridiculously long games. Yeah, so I guess your number one and my number one are very closely tied to each other. 
Absolutely. Well, and I think this game, and we'll just kind of get on to our final thoughts now, I think this game, as we said, plays really good for the first few books. I think with some major tweaks, the game would probably even play well in the last couple books, taking out a bunch of monsters, taking out some cards that stop the progression of the game. I think if you do some of those things, it would actually be a very good game. Now, I will say we haven't played the expansion and we're not reviewing the expansion. There are a couple cool things that come in the expansion, but there's one really negative thing for me as well. So the cool things that it adds, trashing is added in the expansion. Oh, nice. Okay. They also have detention cards, which are negative cards that you put into your deck that bad stuff happens to you when these detention cards come out. So that's pretty cool. The negatives, though, for me are the complexity. They basically start you at year seven. And not only with the complexity, but with the other stuff, too. It's not Horcruxes anymore, but there's another mechanic that is exactly the same that it starts you with in the game. And then they do have less villains, but they just replace those villains with monsters. So I think in the first game, you play with, like, five villains and like five to seven monsters and that's the first game of this four box (laughs) expansion i can only imagine they just add more stuff after that so basically game seven is your starting point for the expansion so with that said i will never play the expansion yeah this is not a game that needs more the problem is that they tried to shove too much into it not not mechanically but just in terms of cards that are available i don't want to fix the game with the expansion My final thought is, if you have a young child that you're trying to get into games, this is great. My son is now a big fan of deck builders, thinks it's amazing to get better cards and become stronger in a quick amount of time, and he's also really into reading Harry Potter now. That's awesome. If you have kids, get this game, or even like, you know, cousins, nephews, nieces, whatever. If you're a big Harry Potter fan, uh, more of a cautious recommend, or even a little bit of a warning... Because as I said, my wife was super excited for the first few games, but then she was like, man, this is really repetitive. And then she was more bothered than me by characters who are dead showing up in the game, both as villains and as cards you can purchase. It's like, uh, that's totally not in the books. So I think for big Harry Potter fans, it actually can be a little bit of a miss, but not for the first few games. I really enjoy at least like the first four or five For gamers, don't get this. This is not a good deck builder. Like, if you're not going to play it with huge Harry Potter fans or with kids, especially kids, get so many of the other options. There's such better games. Like, I I see no reason with such weak deck building, with such a bad, swingy implementation of difficulty, it's not worth it. The the book opening, which is kind of the most fun part of the game, is not as exciting as so many other legacy games that have done it better. So I can't recommend this for gamers at all. For casual people, sure. It doesn't have to just be kids. Even, like, non-gamers will, I think, enjoy this, and maybe it could be a kicking-off point for them, as Peter mentioned. But, yeah, for gamers, don't buy this game. Sorry sorry that I'm down on two games in a row in terms of, like, hey, not recommending you buy it. But I I don't think this is a well-designed game, except for beginners to get them into the mechanics of deck builders. And, 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 you know, I'm not that impressed by that, because deck building was invented by Dominion, and that's the great mechanics. The people who designed this game, not to be rude, like, I think they did what they set out to do. They made an accessible deck builder that does the Harry Potter theme, but they added nothing interesting to the core mechanics of deck builders and actually added some things that were negative. This is a step backwards in deck building, which is, you know, an unfortunate thing to say. 
Especially, I mean, God, look look at things like Aeon's End. In this game, you make no choices on your turn. Everything you do is incredibly obvious. The card you buy is incredibly obvious. Something like Aeon's End adds so many cool things you can do on your turn, gives you so many choices. Like, there have been such a better evolution of deck builders, and this game adds nothing. It is it is totally in the dark ages of deck building. All right, I think we got it. Yeah, sorry, sorry. I, I know I'm sort of being hyperbolic, but yeah, I am I, frustrated that the game is not more than it is. Yeah, and I never got into my final thoughts because I started going off on the expansion. But my thoughts are very similar to Mike's. I will say that we both own this game, ironically enough. So this is one game that we both own. I think it's the only game we've probably reviewed that we both own. I do think there is some value for introducing new gamers. And I do think there is some value to playing it with children. I don't think if you're going to bring it to your game night that you'll get much use out of it after the first four or five and it's funny because they even say if you're an experienced deck builder, start with book four or book three, which is really weird because, I mean, yes, the first couple of games aren't interesting, but they're not that long that I felt the need to cut them out. And in fact, I think you lose something by not adding those cards year after year and you're not doing that. I mean, I guess if you're not a fan of Harry Potter, first of all, I don't know why you'd have this game at all if <laughs> yes. you weren't a fan of Harry Potter, but agreed. Like, yeah, I wouldn't skip ahead to book three. I would play through book one, book two, then book three. It's not going to be interesting, but I don't know that it gets that much more interesting at book three or four. Yeah, I mean, take it for what it is. If you're a big fan, we're sorry. We didn't mean to trash all over the game. I do think there is a use for it. It would probably still be in my top games to introduce new gamers to co-ops just because the theme is so accessible and because the gameplay elements are so easy to learn. I would never take a new gamer through to book seven. That's for sure. I don't know that I will ever play book six or seven again. That's why I only played book seven once. I don't, you know, those are two hours of my life I'll never get back. (laughs) Two hours. That's a pretty fast playthrough of book seven. (laughs) All right. So we're done trashing on this one. Hopefully you guys had a little bit of fun with that. But I do think it's a good game for new gamers as long as you don't play too far in where it gets overburdened. And hey, if, if you want to disagree with us strongly and tell us how great the expansion is or whatever, feel free to uh, ask us to join the Slack. Send us an email at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. One-stop co-op cast on Facebook. Go over there and leave us a comment. Uh, yeah, we'd, we'd love to hear from you. Please feel free to disagree with us. We're just uh, two guys with opinions. Absolutely. All right. Well, with that said, let's get into our design discussion. Yeah, so we're going to be talking about how games add complexity in. And Harry Potter does it. It seems to be a bit of a campaign system, but it's not really. It's just adding some rules and more cards as you go along. So it's building in more complexity and more elements as the game goes along. And we're going to talk about kind of the pros and cons of that way of designing a game and also compare it to games that have more of a campaign system and see which one is better and worse and when that happens. So another one that does this is Magic Maze, right? Is that one where you're basically, the basic mission you play, level one, is very simple, and then you're going to add complex elements as you continue to play along. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's the, the first one on my list, too. And I, I think Magic Maze and Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle present themselves differently. Harry Potter, because it's tied to the book series, does seem to have more story elements, but there isn't really. In the end, it is sort of like a tutorial. But as I mentioned, Magic Maze, I think, does it better because when you finish Magic Maze, you have a really good, solid, well-play-tested game that probably is the game they played the most, and they just kind of worked backward and saw how to teach you those core mechanics in a simpler way. 
Other games that do this that are on my list, uh, Space Alert, one of my favorites, has some training missions that slowly add in more complex things until you're ready to play the regular game, and then you never play those again. You always play the regular game as long as you're with the same group. Legends of Andor, at least for the the first three Legends slowly add in stuff and then the third legend is kind of the repeatable legend with all the key gameplay mechanics four and five legends add in kind of their own special things but three is where you're kind of trying to reach with one and two so all of these are and we've discussed this a little bit in a previous design discussion but it's kind of like a tutorial for the game it's really like a video game system where you know if you play starcraft they're going to walk you through these little simple missions that have some story or have some fun but also explain the core ideas of the game to you so that you can play a real game and understand it. So that's, again, I think where Harry Potter kind of fell down. They had the excitement of adding elements, but as I said earlier, if you're not working toward the best version of your game with this, I don't think this is a way to design your game. Right. If I'm not going to take the final product, like the last one, and play that because it is the finest version of your game and the most interesting, then I think it's a misstep to even consider this as the way you want to design your game in general. So what are the benefits of something like this over a game like Spirit Island, where it doesn't have different levels, right? There's no campaign, there's no story kind of forcing you through this. But with Spirit Island, the enemies have different levels. You can obviously increase complexity. Games like Aeon's End, they have easier villains than they have harder ones. So you can change the level of difficulty yourself. So why would we want to do something like this, walk somebody through a prescribed way of learning the game, rather than just giving them a really easy enemy to fight with early and then a harder one to fight later on? I think that is a really good question. I think Magic Maze and Space Alert and Legends of Andor, it's entirely a teaching method. And you could, theoretically, I've done this with Space Alert, just spend a longer time instructing a new player on how the game plays and jump straight into what is a quote-unquote real game. For Harry Potter, you have a different thing going on. You have the, the excitement of opening the boxes. I think that's the main thing they were going for, both the excitement of seeing each thing tied to a book and the excitement of opening the boxes. I think there is no gameplay benefit or even really educational benefit because the game doesn't really add much. There's really nothing gameplay-wise that the game benefits from doing it this way. It is entirely in the sort of theme connection and the excitement level of the boxes, which is not to be discounted. Opening the boxes is fun. But yeah, there's not much else here. I think Harry Potter would be a better game if there was more varied ways to play because there is very little difference between game four and game five and game six besides that they take too long as you go later. Yeah, I think there's one more benefit that we haven't really covered yet. And that is it gives you a way to learn for people who don't like to read rules. It gives you a way to learn little things while still getting right into the game. So those people who say, oh, you don't have to explain everything. Let's just play. I think those people, it's easier to introduce a beginning level to and then introduce one element at a time. So I do think there is some benefit, although there is benefit to what you and I have done also. And taking it back to the video game scenario, a lot of times you can't skip that tutorial. Well, 
in with this, it's obviously a board game. You can start on whatever scenario you want. And I know when you and I played Magic Maze, we played one and then we played two. Maybe we skipped right to three. And then we went right to five or six. It's like, hey, I'm going to introduce these three elements at the same time. So the nice part about this linear step method is you can kind of jump to wherever you want along the continuum at any point. So I do like the fact that they give you that option. And if you step too far you've kind of done it to yourself, right? <laughs> like if I skip tutorial missions four, five, and six, and I go right to seven, I go, whoa, that was a lot to remember. Well, I did that to myself, and at least I know that, and I can back it down myself pretty easily as well. Yeah, and I'll say uh, an- another game that does this that we didn't mention, it's actually a series of games, are the fast-forward games by Friedman Freeze, where you are turning over cards from number one on and some cards will add new rules to the game as you go along. The one that we I played is Flea, which is the cooperative one. Uh, maybe we'll do a full review of that someday, but I would say don't buy it is my overall <laughs> recommendation for Flea. Yeah, we're not going to do three angry reviews in a row. There's no way. Yes, no, no, I, 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 I don't love hating on games. But yeah, I think Flea highlights a problem with this that Magic Maze has, that Space Alert has, that Andor has, that Harry Potter has, and uh, even something like Mage Knight, I think, has. And that is when you teach your games in this way, you have a rule book problem. And I know you didn't mind the little pamphlets, but it is annoying to me when I play Harry Potter that Game 7 does not have all the rules and the regular rule book does not have all the rules. So I have to pull out multiple pamphlets to remind myself of the exact rules for the game. Magic Maze, the rules are not organized in an organic way. Key rules are organized by the individual learning scenarios. So if I forgot how the rules worked, I'd have to look through these individual scenarios and read a lot of stuff I didn't care about to find the actual mechanical stuff. Space Alert does have a core rule book, but it's not well organized, and I always feel like something's missing from it. Mage Knight, also by Vlada Travadal, has the exact same thing. They have a core rule book, but it's really poorly organized, not written in a good way to learn, and it's really hard to track stuff down, and I feel like some stuff isn't even in there. And the same complaint, I think, has been levied a little bit against Fantasy Flight games for their recent way of doing a learn-to-play rule book that doesn't quite cover all the details. And then a reference rule book that has everything but alphabetically organized and really over-detailed. I don't mind that too much, but that can also be annoying in a sort of different way where you have this learn-to-play rule book that gives you some of the basics but leaves out key information. But then to find that key information, you have to read a reference book that is alphabetically organized and, again, not organized in a way that is friendly to players. So I think all this stuff... It's interesting in that in making the teaching experience better for a new player, so you seem to fall into a trap of making it actually harder to reference back and remind yourself of the rules of the game later unless you follow that progression. Yeah, Andor bothered me really the most of all the games with this because not all the stuff was on the rule books. They were on a lot of the cards that you learned in the first couple of missions. And unless you kept those cards separate, you didn't even have all the rules for the game. So I started putting my cards away after and between games. I used to put those rule cards in a separate folder that I put, I labeled rules. So I would keep them separate. But yeah, that, that bothered me in that situation. I think the things that have done this best are the legacy games, specifically Pandemic Legacy, where you're adding stickers to the rulebook. You're covering up rules that are no longer relevant and adding rules on top of them that are more relevant. 
The problem with that, when it comes to legacy games, is it's only playable once. You can't go backwards. You can't play game one after you've already covered up a rule that was only in game one, or after you've torn up cards. Certainly, you don't have to tear up the cards, but the rule book has changed as well, and figuring out where you are as far as rules-wise becomes an issue with games like that as well. So... Yeah, I don't know what the answer is for these games that progress in difficulty, because either you add too many rules in the initial rulebook, some rules which won't even come in until game five or six, and then in other situations, you have them on separate cards or in separate places where you got to hunt all over the place to find all the rules for the game. So I don't know that there is an easy fix. Well, I, I think the best way to do it is something completely different. And that's the sort of other type of game I had mentioned earlier, uh, Tale of Pirates, which uh, you reviewed with your kids recently, Mechs versus Minions, games where you're not adding rules on bit by bit and it's a teaching method, but where you're playing scenario base and each scenario has all the rules that are pertinent to that scenario right there and I don't have to look back at scenario two to know how to play scenario four. I think it has more variety than any of these other games we've mentioned. Harry Potter has no variety in the gameplay, basically. It's going to feel the same every time. Tale of Pirates, playing Mission 1, feels very different than playing Mission 2. Max vs. Minions, same kind of thing. Well, Tale of Pirates solved it by having the rules on the app. So if I'm playing with a card from Mission 1, I can look up that card at the beginning of Mission 4, 5, whatever else... It is available. So the rules are still in multiple places. Same when you look at Mechs vs. Minions. There are rules in some of those in Mission 1 pamphlet, Mission 2 pamphlet, which aren't in other places in the rulebook, I don't think. So I think those may even still have the same problem. Oh, yeah. I guess I didn't progress all the way to the later campaigns, and I remembered the rules enough. So I, yeah, you, you might be right. I never checked that one much. Future Peter jumping in here for the first time ever. I just looked at the Mechs vs. Minions rulebook, and the way they do it is similar to the Fantasy Flight method, where they have a learn-to-play rulebook, and then they have the rules reference guide, where things are sorted alphabetically. So they use the two-rulebook format to alleviate the problem of trying to learn from and also reference the same rule set. And now back to the show. But yeah, Tale of Pirates uses the app integration to remove that problem. So that is a cool way to kind of address this negative issue we've been talking about. Well, I have an idea, and it's partially because we're going to be doing this very, very soon. And I don't know, let me know what you think of this. So here you go, design discussion, behind the scenes, you're getting behind the, uh, behind the scenes of what we're going to do for one of our newer games that we're working on right now. So we are going to have increasing complexity in that game. We are going to introduce elements that aren't there in game one in later games. And my thought was to write a full rulebook. Imagine a legacy-style rulebook, except instead of having blanks in the spaces where you later put stickers in, you just have the rules there. They are just covered in something that says, not needed until game three. Do not read until game three, whatever else. And then maybe at game, the beginning of game three, it tells you to reference it. But then when you're reading back through the rule book, if you want to start at mission one, you know to skip all those rules for game three, whatever else. So you still have a reference there for which rules you need for which games. And maybe it even says use in game three through seven or three through nine or whatever else. So the rules are always in the rule book but you know you can skip them when you are first reading it, but they are still in the logical place in the rulebook that they should always. See, an example of this that didn't do it perfectly, but I think 
kind of did the idea you're talking about, and I think that could work for our game, is Earth Reborn, which was a bit of a tactical miniatures like, skirmish game from a while back that some people really liked, had pretty cool miniatures, some people had a lot of problems with. But it did have the thing where, and I've seen this in a few games, where you only read to page three of the rulebook for mission one, and then you read to page four of the rulebook for mission two, and then you read to page five of the rulebook for mission three, so it's still all organized, kind of like campaigns or scenarios, but it's a little bit easier to reference. Uh, Duel of Ages, I think, did the same kind of a thing. I think that can work well because you can look in one place to find everything, and as you said, in a somewhat organized way, but it's also partitioned for you, so you don't need to read the entire thing all at once. It's not perfect because kind of like with the scenario thing, you're never going to be able to organize things in the best way for learning and reference. Right. You're still going to organize them in a chronological way that progresses with the way the game adds. But I think it's still probably the best option if you can't do app integration, which most game designers and game companies can't in the way the Tale of Pirates did. I think for some people now, they don't want the app integration. I think some people do. I know you and I have been fans of app integration not standalone app games themselves, but the integration into other games, some people are still pushing back against that technology. But I'll tell you, with the ability to change a rulebook, even if they made a mistake in the rulebook, or games like Time Stories where we talked about, maybe there were grammatic errors in the game. If the story was all written in the app, they could easily change those story elements later on. They could fix some of their grammatical errors and people aren't staring at them forever. For me, that might be the best way to do this, is integrate it in an app, because the rulebook discussion is really hard for these games. Yeah, I mean, not, not to make the design discussion about apps, but I know a concern, and it's something that I've thought about, especially for smaller companies, is if the app is not supported, you know, we saw fairly recently how all the iPhone apps had to update to this newer version of an operating system, and I don't know about you, but a large slew of apps from smaller publishers that might have gone under or just didn't have the money to update their game suddenly don't work on my phone anymore. So I I know there are worries. I mean, (laughs) they're not worries, I think, for the majority of gamers that they really need to worry about because how many of us actually pick up games from, like, five years ago or ten years ago and keep on playing them? I think the cult of the new is strong enough that you don't have to worry about it as much as you might think you do. But still, I know that apps are not all roses and sunshine. There is that worry there that maybe someday the app will not work. Yeah, so we've talked about a lot of things to be cautious of. Do we think there is a good way to do this? And I mean, we've talked about some of the benefits as well at the beginning, but I want to kind of say that this isn't something we should abandon as a design community. I think this is something we are working toward. I think a tutorial mode is something that gamers enjoy. I just think the referencing issue is a problem. I mean, I think you can do it in multiple ways. I think you can have a rulebook that is a complete rulebook. As you were saying, you just add in rules later, and maybe you have a card reiterate what's in the rulebook. You know, now you're going to need these rules going forward. I think the Fast Forward series, you played the Flea one, which is the only cooperative one, but I played the other two, and those actually worked pretty well. You don't actually have a rule book for those. The cards themselves become the rule book as you play it later on. And they're really meant to be played in one night, so there's not going to be a lot of rules referencing anyway because you just learned the rules to the game. So it teaches you in a more organic way. The problem is, do you want to start at the beginning again the next time you play? So, yeah, I keep trying to come up with positive things and good ways to do this, and I keep kind of running into roadblocks. 
Well, a, a couple things I think designers could think about. Number one, I feel like I've seen this before, but I'm not sure which game did it. I think you could write a rule book and organize a rule book in the most logical way for the final complete rules of the game. And then partition off things. So instead of like putting them in their own section where it doesn't maybe make the most sense, have them be in a different font color. Could be difficult for colorblind people, but have it be in a different font color and say, hey, don't read red text until mission three. Don't read yellow text until mission five or have it like boxed off in a different way so that everything is organized in the best way possible for learning and referencing. But... I can kind of skip it with my brain until it's time to include it. I think that might be a way to tackle the rulebook thing, another thing to consider. I guess I didn't explain it very well earlier. That's what I was trying to say for our rulebook that oh, I was I'm hoping sorry. we would do. You organize it right, and you just say skip this section until you're Oh, yeah, no, I, I think that's great. I'm sorry. I was thinking of uh, the way Earth Reborn did it was, like, don't read the next three pages until you play Mission 3. So, yes, gotcha. I, I, like, I like the way you're talking about better. I think that is a good idea. The other thing I think that... Magic Maze and Space Alert especially do well. And actually, Harry Potter. I think Harry Potter does it well. If you make the early versions fully fun to play, maybe not as challenging or complex for gamers as it could be, but still interesting, I think that's a really good way to do it. So Magic Maze, it's entirely fun to play the game at level 2 or 3 where you don't have all the powers, you don't have all the things that mess you up. Until you're so good that it's not that interesting anymore. Space Alert, I've still played with people who know all the rules and prefer to not play with the internal threats because the game is a lot more straightforward and it's a little bit easier for them to figure out the puzzle. Um, and again, Harry Potter, I vastly prefer playing game three or four over the early ones which are too early or the later ones that add too much bloat. So I think that's something interesting to look at. If you don't think of it as such a tutorial that it's just like kind of boring and dull, which I would say the video game example usually is, you know, it's like I would never, ever want to play this video game tutorial if they let me skip it again, because who cares? You know, if I've seen the story, I don't want to press X again and learn how to move forward again. So I think if you think of it a little bit less as a tutorial and like these games kind of make it its own slightly pared down but still fun version of the game, I think that's probably a good thing to shoot for. You get the the kind of tutorial feel but not the tutorial boredom if you're stuck playing it with new players and that kind of thing. Well, and I think what we talked about doing with Salvation Road is another way to do it also. And I guess actually we can even do it to a, a more recent example by the designers of Mice and Mystics, the new Stuff Fables game, where maybe the core rules are the core rules, and the core rules aren't going to change throughout the game, but every mission becomes more interesting because you have special rules for that mission, and the difficulty increases with that mission as you go on, but you don't need those rules later. You don't need to go back and reference them. All the core rules are going to be the core rules, so maybe that's part of the key to the game is don't add extra things later that are going to even carry over to future missions. Have each mission have its own specific rules that aren't the core rules that are unique to it just in that mission text. Well, and I think that is kind of how most of the scenario games do it. I think Tale of Pirates, as far as I've gotten, except for like the bunks when those get added, 
the core rules are pretty much stayed the core rules and the actions all work the same. It's just the challenge and the way I'm interacting with the enemies is different from scenario to scenario. And I would say the same thing about mechs versus minions. Again, as far as I've gotten, it felt like once they introduced the full damage rules in scenario two and three, they weren't going to add that much more except for stuff that was scenario specific. Like here's how the big boss works in this scenario. Bam. Don't ever worry about him for scenario five and six. He's just in scenario four or whatever. I'm not sure which one he's in. So I think the, the campaign based games are doing that already. But again, it's a very different thing. They're not trying to slowly spoon feed you the mechanics of the game. They are adding fun diversions onto the core mechanics, which I would say is more similar to what you had brought up earlier, playing a different villain in Aeon's End. The game plays the same. The things I do are the same, but the enemy adds new complications and new things for me to consider. So... In the end, I think the tutorial thing is very much its own thing. These other things are just ways to kind of vary up gameplay with some special powers and cards. But for better or for worse, a game like Magic Maze or Harry Potter is kind of doing a slightly different thing. Yeah, and I don't know that there is a solution. Certainly not one that I've seen that's come out yet, or maybe we're missing one, and maybe you guys have some. So I think we're going to end on that note. I, I think there is a way to do it. We just haven't seen what we think is the best possible way to do it yet. But if any of you out there have, please email us at MVP Board Games. Join the Slack channel. Let us know there. We'd love to have a continuing discussion on it. And since we've had Slack, we've had really good discussions there with a lot of the people who've joined. There's a lot of people in there, and there's a lot of discussion always going on between these episodes. So it's a really good way to, to kind of keep tabs. Even if you just come into Lurk, I think it's, it's a good place to kind of get our feelings on a lot of things and get a lot of other people's feelings on what we've already talked about. Yeah, I mean, I, I just got a, what I hope is a really good game recommendation for Battle of Greyport, which is a cooperative deck builder I'd never even heard of, but at least reading through the rule book, it seems like it might fix a lot of the problems that Peter and I had with Dragonfire. It kind of feels similar to that game, but looks, I hope, designed way better. So... Yeah, it's a cool place. So we'd love to have you all on in any of the places, Facebook, Slack, anywhere you can contact us. Make your voices heard. Tell us when we're wrong. We're, we're, we're here for you. We're doing this for you. We like to talk, but we also like you know to hear you talk <laughs> and, and share your opinions. So yeah, come join us. All right, and thanks for joining us again on Co-op Cast. Bye-bye, everybody. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Co-op Cast, your one-stop for cooperative game news and reviews. If you enjoyed this week's episode, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Fate. They provide our bumper music. Also, check out Colin on his YouTube channel, One Stop Co-op Shop, and follow us on Facebook at One Stop Co-op Cast. Finally, join our Slack group by emailing us at MVP Board Games for continued discussion on these topics throughout the week. Thanks for joining us, and we'll see you next week. Hey, everybody. How is it going? Again, they still can't hear you. Oh, jeez. Oh, you're making a joke, aren't you? I was <laughs> making a joke. <laughs> Peter, it is to laugh. <laughs> okay. <your> funny joke. <laughs> <coughs> if you so chose, there is no mechanic that makes it get harder automatically as the game goes on. <coughs> Give me a second.
Don't die. And you have the same thing here. That leads to the ramp up. <coughs> yeah, give me a second. I'm going to get some water and a throat trap. I'll be right back. All right. <coughs> well, Mike is gone. I'm just going to talk smack about him because we left the recording on. Yeah, he needs to get that throat out of his frog. That wasn't much smack. I don't really have much to say. I'm just going to sit here and talk to myself. So Infinity Wars was pretty good. I like that one. I've seen a lot of movies lately, actually. My kids are getting to the age now where I can take them to the movies and actually enjoy myself. And they're not getting up running around the theater or whatever else. And they want to see a lot of the movies I do. My wife and son went and saw Jurassic World. He and I had already seen it once. The newest Jurassic World. We went and saw Infinity Wars. I went with my son first. Then we went as a whole family. It's been a good time for me. Mike's back. He brought water. Also, The Incredibles 2, really good movie as well. Welcome to Movie Chat with Peter, but I'm going to have to stop all this drab now since Mike's back. Hey, Mike. Hi. My throat is dying. I got our outtakes. Nice. All right, I'm just going to kind of pick up in a random place and we'll... Uh... I reviewed a bunch of the movies while you were gone. Hey, really? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's funny. Get on our Facebook, One Stop co-op shop or co-op cast i forget which name it is right now one shop co-op cast say it again akio goodbye